Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. off by watching The Sound of Music last night with my daughter. How about that? Yep. So, and you know what it made me think of? I mean, that's the way we used to uh, largely exist, right? On Sunday nights, uh, Walt Disney was on, (laughs) you know, in another... In another day and time. And, uh, I mean, think about the way our, our lives used to be. You know, we, we all didn't have phone apps and phones, and we're not bombarded by the daily, you know, soap opera that goes on in Washington, D.C. You know, they made laws. Some of them impacted us. A lot of them did not, right? And, uh, you know, you read about them in the newspaper, you know, once you close the newspaper, you know, you moved away. 60 minutes of nightly news at the national level. Your local news, I think, was another 30 minutes. I'm sorry. I think the national news was 60, 30, 30 minutes. And then I think maybe you had another 30 minutes of local news. So that was the extent of the news coverage. And although these things went on in the nation, right, it wasn't wall to wall in your face as it is today, and I just I I, I don't that struck me as I I'm sitting there watching Sound of Music now. And let me tell you the version of the Sound of Music I watched. The version I watched was I had to buy it, obviously, because uh, you can't watch it for free. So um, I looked around, and you could buy it on a number of places. Amazon that I'm not happy with because the way they censor people. Um, yeah, you can't buy Clarence Thomas's book, I think. Uh, you can't get um, 
uh, Shelby Steele's documentary, What Killed Michael Brown, there. I mean, just stuff like that, right, in the United States. But as somebody pointed out last week, I don't know where I saw it, but you could buy Mein Kampf anywhere. Yeah, knock yourself out. You can read what Hitler wrote. So, the day and age in which we live. So, I wish there was another retailer that didn't do that. I would certainly trash my Amazon participation and do that. Um, And so, I saw a version of The Sound of Music that's three hours and 44 minutes. And I thought, well, how long is the film, you know? And, um, I mean, what is that? Is that wrong? I mean, I don't think it's wrong. It's got 18,000 reviews on it, for God's sakes. So that's the version I bought. And um, so I turn it on. Like at Sunday afternoon, I don't know. It was before we ate dinner. So I want to say I turned it on around 4 o'clock. The movie's three hours long. Yeah. Two hours and 58 minutes, I think. And so um, so then there's about a, I don't know, 40-minute uh, program that comes on afterwards, hosted by Julie Andrews. Yeah, the one and only Julie Andrews. And she takes you back to Salzburg, where the, the scenes they filmed on location were filmed. And she takes you to the different places that you see in the movie. And she shows them to you. She interviews people. She talks to people about how that movie has impacted, you know, people from all over the world that have gone to see that. And so, again, what was, um, what was impressed on me was how different we are, um, right, as a nation in terms of of we now have you know news in our faces 24 hours a day 7 days a week and i don't know that that really contributes to anybody's life they will do what they will do and you know and if uh and i don't i'm not exactly sure how you know, how us tuning into it constantly makes our lives better. I would tell you, I, I, I don't think it does. Because, you know, last night was a delightful night. I mean, it would be better, I think, for me if I spent more delightful nights with my daughter than, you know, watching the news and then a news talk show and then a second news talk show. And that's the background, you know, that's the soundtrack of the world that I live in on a daily basis. So... I just I, I offer that to you for your consideration for um, I don't think that watching the events that come out of Washington D.C. right and the nation's um, the nation's dueling narrative in slow motion high definition I don't know that that contributes to your life and if it does. I would tell you it certainly doesn't contribute in a positive way. <laughs> it certainly does not. So um, uh, give that some thought. Give that some thought. This just in from the CDC. 
people vaccinated against COVID-19 can safely gather in small groups without masks, but should continue to take precautions in public, according to the CDC. It's groundbreaking. First thing you've ever heard that says if you're vaccinated, you can gather with anybody, right? And this doesn't say anybody, but um, that you can gather without a mask. How about that? Um, I feel the need, um, as opposed to doing the latest COVID stories. Yeah, you know, if you if you paid any attention, um, if you if you uh, if you pay pay any attention, you saw a story that said Russians are using a disinformation campaign to go ahead and try to discredit. Um, American vaccines in order to sow more discord, which is just their continuing action, right? Were I the president, I would, I would make it my business to focus U.S. Cyber Command on these campaigns and to put them out of business, to track them, to look for them, to seek them out, and to kill them <laughs> electronically, of course. So, um, but I do feel a need. Now that I've kind of done that, I think I did this last week. So to go to the CDC website, um, this is the daily trends, COVID cases right, in the United States. And you can go, it's interactive data. Right? And so let's see. Um, Last week, we were at, let's see, February 27th. So, let's see, what's a week ago? March 2nd. So, cases went up across the country. Last report. So, cases were on March 7th. The weekends are low reports, right? So, we ended February 28th. With 70,000 cases, we ended the week of, um, on March 6th, we ended with 57,000 cases. So, yeah. So the the downward trend on a weekly basis uh, continues. So I, if I could, February 5th, that's the end of the week, I think, uh, cases, new cases, we're at 126,000. February 13th, new cases, the United States, 88,000. February 20th, new cases, United States, 69,000. February 13th, I'm sorry, 88,000. So this is like, I think, Fridays, if I'm not mistaken. February 20th, new cases, 69,000. February 27th, 70,000. So it goes sideways. And then March 6th, 57,000. So you can, you can see those numbers continue to fall. Uh, so that's just a data point in the, in the country. 
um, that you should be aware of. Uh, Mark Kansian going to join me this morning on a um, on a Monday edition of All Marine Radio. Mark from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, retired Marine Colonel, writer, think tank guy. And um, so I had him on, I don't know, probably about a year ago, talk about force design, Commandant's uh, the 2030 thing. And so I thought I'd have him on again and a year later, and uh, the Commandant just sent a memo to the Secretary of Defense giving him an update. So I thought I'd have Mark Cancian on and Mark Cancian on. And I kind of combined those two words. And uh, and we'll talk about that. Get Mark's thoughts on uh, on uh, the Marine Corps and where it's gone and the questions that it has. So so we'll do that here in a couple minutes. The uh, United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official, though. Good morning to you. <laughs> This is dedicated to uh, the entire cast of The Sound of Music. Just want to tell you that I thoroughly enjoyed the movie last night. And uh, <clears throat> if you're, if you, I'll tell you what, if you want a, a fun experience, buy or rent the version of The Sound of Music with uh, Julie Andrews at the end taking you on a tour of Salzburg. Absolutely delightful. Um, absolutely delightful. 50 years after the movie came out, um, they go back and they look at the places that they were and the impact of the movie on all these different places. So very, very cool stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I had a wonderful time with my daughters watching The Sounds of Music. So this is dedicated to her and them. Well done.
You're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. You know, the maddest thing is funny every time I hear it. I have to tell you that. It's <laughs> it's funny stuff. Yeah, it's a good line. Right? Um, currently, it is partly sunny and 48 in Quantico down the coast of Camp Lejeune. It is Sunny in 53, Marine Corps Base 29 Palms is sunny in 57, Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton, clouds and 57, Camp Smith and Hawaii, dark cloudy and 72, Okinawa, dark clear in 64, Okinawa got colder, in Darwin, it's colder there as well, dark cloudy in 77, in Oslo, in Norway, it is partly sunny and 38 at the home of All Marine Radio here in Southern California. It is cloudy and 58. Not going to get very warm today. Looking for a high of 62 today, 61 tomorrow, 58 on Wednesday, 57 on Thursday, 61 on Friday. What the hell, man? We turned into Seattle all of a sudden. This sucks. All right. So that is a look at your weather. We'll check news headlines right now. And uh, yeah, this means we're going to check news headlines. And then Mark Cancio after that. All right, a real quick look at DOD headlines. Uh, Stars and Stripes. Top story is U.S. pitches power sharing plan to speed up Afghan peace process. In a letter to Afghan President Ashraf Ghani, the U.S. is still considering whether to withdraw its remaining 2,500 troops by May 1st under the terms of the deal struck last year between President Trump and the Taliban. So we'll see. We shall see. Uh, 2,500 troops still remain in Afghanistan. Another related story. With less U.S. support, Afghan elite forces struggle to roll back Taliban advances. So 
So again, where this is headed is a failure by the Afghan military, in my opinion. Which will then leave the countryside in control of the Taliban and the cities in control of the uh, tribal tribes that control them. And then Afghanistan will decide what Afghanistan will survive, uh, decide. And so the question is, do the United States and its allies, NATO allies, want to continue to pursue their ends there? So we shall see. So that's from that top story in Stars and Stripes. Top story in the Wall Street Journal is must not be a whole lot going on because they're both stock stories and you don't see them, right? You don't see them. Uh, you, you don't see it that often anymore, right? One of the news stories headlines this. As COVID-19 vaccine eligibility expands, interest could wane. Hesitancy, notable among younger adults, remains a potential challenge to achieving herd immunity. Well, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think I, I agree with that because I would tell you that, you know, those people aren't at risk. And I would say most of them have already been exposed to it. I mean, how? To, I mean, look at the data um, in, in terms of herd immunity, some of which I just talked about on the CDC website. I have to tell you that <clears throat> I can't tell you how low my opinion has sunk of Prince Harry, who I genu genuinely held in high regard. To go on TV and shit talk his family, right, that has made him a millionaire, giving him all his titles and stuff like that, clown stuff. Clown stuff, in my opinion. Uh, top story in USNI News, <clears throat> Pentagon has announced its nominee to lead Indo-PACOM, John Aquaino, U.S. Pacific Fleet commander, will be the Biden administration nominee to head all forces in the Indo-Pacific. Listen to this. This is probably the most interesting thing I saw over the weekend. Um, House Armed Service Committee Chairman calls on Congress to scrub the F-35 program. How about that? The House Armed Service Committee Chairman called on, right, Congress to scrub the F-35 program. Quote, we've got to seriously scrub programs like the F-35 Lightning II Joint Strike Fighter in Congress instead of rewarding people for failure, not results. That from the chairman, Adam Smith. Speaking at a Brookings Institution forum, Smith said, quote, there's not any easy way out of a program like the F-35 even despite its concerns on cost and performance. Quote, it all comes down to not putting all your eggs in one basket, he said, which happened with the fifth-generation fighter. Smith said he wasn't saying the United States and its allies did not need to modernize attack and fighter aircraft. 
I want to stop throwing money down that rat hole. Instead of buying more F-35s, he said the Air Force's FX, F-15EX could provide a model for other services to follow in adding capacity to their air fleets without retooling production lines already developed for foreign military sale. Following his remarks on the F-35, Smith said, quote, don't even get me started on the 500-ship Navy. <laughs> He said the number, which included unmanned vessels, originally came from a survey of combatant commanders on what they believed they needed for their area's responsibility. He compared it to asking Cookie Monster, how many cookies could you ha- should you have in your cookie store? Is there ever a time we're going to satisfy combatant commanders on what they want? No. There's a finite amount of money. Smith Adam added, Tell them this is your budget. Make it work. Smith added to that. Let's just spend the goddamn money effectively and not become obsessed with numbers of ships in the fleet or overall size of the Pentagon budget. Substantively, the size of the budget is about the least important thing we could talk about. <laughs> Looking at his colleagues in Congress who push for funding within the Pentagon budget based on parochial priorities, Smith says, quote, it's not their job to push as much money as possible into their district. He said he understood the urge, no, noting it's politics. We don't have the money to waste. Nice. Nice. How about that? Shit can the F-35. Thing just got here. Right? I mean, if if you were watching the DOD, the Marine Corps is going to start deactivating Osprey squadrons. That was just the the panacea, right? And now we spent all that money, and now you're deactivating it and sending those things where? To mothballs? Holy smokes, right? Holy smokes. And now the chairman of the Senate Armed Service Committee says is already bad-mouthing the F-35, and say, we need to get something new. Wow. Uh, top stories from Marine Corps Times. Paris Island in peril. Rising sea levels threaten the historic Marine base. Listen to this. Quote, this is the headline. Sewage in bathtubs, more mold, stinky closet, officers sue landlord over their Monterey housing. Wasn't that supposed to be fixed, what, two years ago? Another interesting, another interesting article. Uh, President Biden signals his support to replace the War Powers Authority. Now, that is the authority, you know, that goes back to the the beginning of hostilities. And that is the, um, that is the basis for all of these uh, actions uh, in the Middle East. So we'll see if that happens. We'll see if that happens. Top five stories in Early Bird and then Mark Cancion. You will hear him. Uh, number one, U.S. proposes interim power-sharing agreement with the Taliban. 
Number two, Biden signaled support for to replace the War Powers Authority. Number three, the Navy tried to cast Captain Brett Crozier as a villain. New emails reveal how much support he really had. Number four, U.S. B-50, again, gossip stuff, right? Gossip stuff. Uh, U.S. B-52s again fly over the Middle East in a warning to Iran. Number five, after delay under Trump, two female generals nominated to run combatant commands. Air Force General Jacqueline Van Ost has been nominated to head the U.S. Transportation Command. U.S. Army Lieutenant General Laura Richardson to head the U.S. Southern Command and receive her fourth star. So, that in the news. And then anything from overseas operations. Um, a, a pretty big story because the headline's been around for a long time. U.S. and South Korea have agreed to a cost-sharing arrangement. So, that's been, that dance has been going on for a couple of years under the Trump administration. Um, so, there you have it. Um and again, headlines we didn't used to see, but we see now. Navy vaccinating crews of two COVID-stricken ships in Bahrain. So, you know, we used to, you know, now the ship's got to go to isolation, blah, 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 blah. Um, that's not the way we're doing it anymore, right? The Navy surges um, vaccine to whoever's affected. And so, so we go. All right. With all that being said, Mark Hansion, um is a uh, contributor to the show on, uh, I, I won't say a regular basis, but, you know, we have him on once or twice a year. And so Mark Hansen joins us now right here on a Monday edition of All Marine Radio talking about Force Design 2030. Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only... All Warrior Radio Network. We haven't done it in a while, but um, I'm privileged to be joined uh, today by retired Marine Colonel Mark Canson. Mark, uh, first of all, um, how are you? How are things in Arlington, Virginia? Well, thanks for having me on the show again. Uh, Arlington, Virginia is fine. You know, we're you know, locked down like most of the country. You know, it's opening a little, but, you know, we haven't got out much. Uh, and we're hopeful of getting out a little more. My wife and I received our first shot. And with luck, we'll be able to get out a bit. All right. Mark is the senior advisor uh, in the International Security Program for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is a prolific writer. If you're a Marine and you read, you've run across Mark's work uh, in the Gazette and uh, in different uh, different publications. And, uh, and so uh, commenting on uh, things defense-related and, uh, and, and certainly the Marine Corps. Um, let me ask you a couple general questions. Uh, give me a book to read that you would say is uh, indispensable an indispensable um, indispensable book and then i'll yeah. ask you, and then i'll ask you for a second uh, one that more about current events so so uh give me an indispensable book that you would tell people to to read 
Yeah, um, I would I would say, well, the, the book I'm reading now, um, it's Mark Bloch's uh, book called Strange Defeat. And it's a book that I think everyone ought to read now. Uh, uh, Mark Bloch was uh, actually a French professor of medieval uh, history. Uh, he had been a platoon commander in the First World War, uh, then got his doctorate, went and taught in the university. In the Second World War, he was called up, you know, served on a higher level staff, and then um, after the war, uh, joined the resistance and was actually executed uh, by the Nazis. Uh, but he, after the defeat in 1940, he wrote a book called Strange Defeat that looked back on France's defeat and sort of how it looked at a high-level headquarters. And he talked about you know, how the French command was, of course, too slow, you know, how people had a hard time moving from peacetime to wartime pace, and what happened when they were surprised and the, the paralysis that uh, uh, infected people. Uh, I think it's worthwhile reading now because for the first time in 70 years, we are facing great powers and a potential conflict with great powers, which is very different from the kind of conflicts we fought for, well, last 70 years, uh, where we were fighting regional powers, where the United States had an overwhelming amount of uh, military capability. We, we, sometimes we opted not to use all of it, but there was no question that we were going to be uh, defeated, uh, that our forces were going to be um, uh, you know, destroyed. Uh, that could very well happen in a great power conflict. And the kind of dynamic that um, Bloch talks about uh, is something that all of us should read about so we can be forewarned and avoid it in, uh, in a future conflict. So he writes the book after the fall of France and before he's executed for that's being right. part of the resistance. Wow. That's, that's right. Uh, and it's subtitled like a, a Frenchman examines his conscience and I said, looks at his personal experience and, you know, from that, uh, you know, makes some judgments about you know, going to war and the, the way the French uh, went to war. But, you know, it would be very easy for us to look back on that and say, well, you know, that was the French. They lost. You know, we would never do anything like that. But, um, you know, the French, you know, they were, you know, they, they had prevailed in the First World War. They were considered the best army in Europe. Uh, they had a long, proud tradition. And you know, then they were surprised and defeated. Uh, and, you know, there were a lot of parallels uh, to the United States. Yeah, in short order, by the way. Um, surprised and defeated in short order. Um, give me one more book. Uh, give me a classic uh, book that you would say no military libra library is complete without. Um, uh, fighting Power, uh, Van Creveld. You know, they say that amateurs talk about strategy, professionals talk about logistics. Well, true professionals talk about personnel. And uh, Van Creevel's book, Fighting Power, looks at the United States and the Wehrmacht and compares their personnel systems and makes the point that there were elements of the Wehrmacht's personnel system that made it such a powerful force. You know, it wasn't about uh, equipment, uh, but it was about, you know, how they selected people, how they trained them, uh, how they um, promoted and organized them, and that that gave them uh, immense resilience. 
And, you know, the United States is not going to turn itself into the Wehrmacht, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, and we wouldn't want to because, of course, you know, they did follow, uh, you know, a, a, an ideology that was uh, indescribably evil. But there, the notion that fighting power can be related to your personnel administration and your personnel policies is a very powerful one that, again, we don't think about a lot. The interesting. Um, well, just because we wouldn't follow their example doesn't mean we, we can't learn from them. And I think, we, right? I mean, I, I think we've learned from that uh, uh, throughout. The, um, all right, I want to ask you, we had you on, I don't know, was it a year ago, Mark, or, or so? Yep. Um, and, you know, we talked about Force Design 2030. And so a year has gone by. And um, and the Marine Corps has uh, has has is, has moved down that road, and so yep. I wanted to have you back on and uh, talk about the evolution of your thoughts relative to uh, to General Berger's plan, and uh, and and see where you are today. Um, so um, the Marine Corps now uh, di has divested itself of tanks and and much tube artillery. And um, and has begun standing up the Marine Littoral Regiments in Hawaii. Um, there are uh, discussions ongoing with the Navy about the construction of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of a new class of ship that will move uh, Marines that are members of the Marine Littoral Regiments around. Um, what say ye to all of this? Because if I can remember the title of what you wrote, it was... Not so fast, Marine Corps. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, well, let me go back to the restructuring, and then we can talk specifically about the littoral uh, uh, combat regiments um, and the um, um, light amphibious warship. Uh, <clears throat> nothing has really changed in the last year in terms of the Marine Corps restructuring. The Commandant actually just sent a memo to the new Secretary of Defense, um, uh, Secretary Austin, reaffirming the restructuring and, and really not changing any of the details or adding any additional details. So, uh, the, you know, the Marine Corps remains committed. They, you know, they're doing uh, experiments and um, tests, but they haven't changed the structure or added any more details. Uh, I'll come back to that because there are a couple of details that they left out. Uh, you know, and my reservations are still the same. Uh, uh, I think it is too focused on China. And when I say too focused, I mean that it is appropriate to think about China. Most strategists uh, identify China as the greatest uh, challenge to the United States. Uh, so focusing there and in the Western Pacific makes a lot of sense. Uh, the exclusive focus on China that's uh, implied by this restructuring makes me very nervous because when you look at the places that the United States has fought in the last 70 years, none of them were places we expected to fight. Uh, there, it's been said that we deter the conflicts we prepare for and fight the conflicts we don't prepare for. So, you know, the Marine Corps was in Korea, the Marine Corps was in Vietnam, the Marine Corps was in Kuwait, the Marine Corps was in Iraq, um, the Marine Corps was in Afghanistan. None of these were fights that we expected. Uh, but the Marine Corps arguably did pretty well because it maintained a broad range of capabilities that allowed it to adapt to the demands of the particular uh, conflict. You know, in, in um, Vietnam, it could focus on the infantry. Uh, in uh, Kuwait, it could 
put all of its mechanized forces together and create um, a mechanized brigade. Uh, the restructuring gets away from all that. Uh, it you know, strips out the tanks, it strips out a lot of the artillery, it's going to make the infantry much lighter, uh, takes, essentially takes out a lot of firepower and focuses on this notion of you know, small enclaves of Marines with long range missiles and aviation, you know, on hopping around on islands uh, and engaging the Chinese. Uh, so my, first, my, my foot stop to the Marine Corps is hedge. And, uh, you know, all of my writings about the restructuring say hedge, not that you should give up on the restructuring because there are some very good things about it. And it's important to focus on China, but hedge against the possibility that you will not, you, the Marine Corps will not be engaged in that war, but might fight a different war. Now, I get when I tell Marines this, you know, a lot of them come back and say, well, two things. You know, one is all these other fights are lesser included capabilities. And if we need capabilities like tanks, we'll just get them from the army. And I say, you know, both of those assumptions are dead wrong. The first is wrong because if you prepare for one kind of fight and then you get sent to a different kind of fight, you're not well prepared. And the U.S. Army did this experiment in the 1960s. Uh, they built an army that was designed to fight the Soviets uh, on the inter-German border. And then they sent that army to Southeast Asia to fight guerrillas. And that army did very poorly, it took a long time to adapt. And some people argue never did adapt. And the same thing would happen to the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, a, a Marine Corps that was designed for small units dispersed on islands in the West Pacific would do very poorly if it was sent to you know, Korea or the Middle East or, or wherever. And the second thing is the notion that we will just get them from the army is assuming a lot. The army has not programmed any tanks to provide to the Marine Corps. All the army tanks belong to some army brigade. And for the Marine Corps to get those tanks, they would have to rip them out of an army division and the army's not going to want to do that. Uh, uh, Marines well, say, well, well the, yeah, the, the, the desert storm scenario that said, Oh, well, you know, the army gave us, what was it? The tiger brigade, tiger brigade. And, and right. most people don't know the footnotes that go with that, that drug deal um, in terms of the tiger brigade being off ramped and was, you know, was getting ready to be deactivated. Um, can you go through the footnotes of that? Yep. Yep. Exactly. And that was it. Exactly. You know, the, that's right. The Marine Corps got, Tiger Brigade because its division had been deactivated and it was an orphan. So, so it didn't belong to anybody. It was available for assignment to the Marine Corps. And right after the war, it was deactivated. So there was a very special circumstance whereby the Marine Corps got tanks from the Army. That won't be the case in the future. And I think what the Marine Corps would do, or rather what the Army would do, would say, okay, Marine Corps, we'll give you tanks. We'll give you an armored BCT out of the National Guard. You're just going to have to wait 120 days until they get ready and get shipped over there, um, which, right. of course, is the antithesis of, you know, the Marine Corps, you know, first to fight, ready to go, right. uh, except, oh, wait a minute, we got to wait 120 days for the National Guard to show up. And that's not a hit on the National Guard. That's how long it takes to get, you know, a, a brigade uh, ready. Uh, I think combatant commanders, you know, when the Marine Corps comes in and says, we, you know, we, we want a, an army armored brigade. A combatant command is going to look at this and say, hmm, I can have an inter-service battle here with the army as I try to rip a armored brigade out of one of their divisions, or I can just get an army brigade 
where one brigade, you know, one call gets it all right. and not have this inter-service battle. You know, so what what they the rational thing for them to do is just call up another army brigade and, you know, let the Marine Corps do, you know, various security or something. Now, let's talk about that. Um, you know, a lot of people just drove off the road when you said the, do what the Marine Corps do what? Um, but so the Marine Corps of the future, we don't do sustained land combat. Right, right. I mean, the, the commandant has been uh, explicit that he's taking those capabilities out. And if the Marine Corps were in a conflict like, you know, Korea, like the Middle East, uh, and you know, lacks this mobility, lacks the heavy firepower. I think that combatant commanders are going to look at that and say, "All right, we might be able to use your long-range missiles and the aviation. Of course, we can integrate with the um, JFAC. Uh, but the rest of you, you know, you've got your light. You're very light. You have very little firepower. You're immobile. You know, we'll have you, you know, do rear area security. That's that's a good job for, you know, light infantry that's immobile." And, you know, the, let the army go fight the war. And and that's essentially the Marine Corps' plan, too. I mean, they say we're not going to prepare for sustained land combat. So if we get into that, the army will take the lead and the Marine Corps will have this um, secondary role. Got it. Um, have, uh, to your knowledge, have I haven't seen this discussed much, but have the war plans been adjusted to account for this because – in various war plans around the world that the Department of Defense has, that keeps in you know on the shelf waiting to execute, um, yeah. the Marine Corps, uh, the First Marine Division, the Second Marine Division, Third Marine Division, are parts of the, those war plans. Yep. Um, have those war plans? I have not seen hearings or or any seen anything written that says there's a reconciliation that needs to be done here. The Marine Corps is divesting itself and taking big assets out of war plans does the army have the ass to just to, to just self-generate this stuff currently or does the army's size have to be adjusted because of the opportunity cost created by the marine corps yeah has that reconciliation I, happened to you in, in, I mean, in the answer is no but i think over the next couple of years you're going to see some revisions of the war plan i mean driven mostly by the fact that there's a new administration that will want to get involved in designing war plans. Uh, and there are a bunch of you know, sort of issues out there beyond the Marine Corps that will need to be figured out. For example, the Marine Corps and the Navy have said, we're not doing a massed amphibious landing. Okay, so Marines, you know, 5027, you know, had, saw some, envisioned some massed landings. Those are now out. So the combatant commander is going to have to think about how he's going to use these uh, forces. And then, you know, in the Army, you know, you have different capabilities coming coming along long range uh, strike. Uh, so, so for a variety of reasons, I think the war, many of the war plans will be revised, and uh, uh, you know, and this issue's I, I hope comes up because the time to think about it is now. Uh, you know, if the Marine Corps says we want Army tanks, you want to talk about that now and not you know on Sea Day when you're getting ready to deploy. We'll keep our fingers crossed, right? We'll we'll keep our fingers crossed that 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 in fact does happen. Um, so you mentioned earlier, and so I want to come back to this. Um, there wasn't any new details added 
to uh, the Commandant's memo to uh, Secretary of Defense Austin on, uh, I believe it's dated uh, February 23rd, ironically, which is a day that lives in Marine Corps history very vividly. Um, uh, what was left out that you that you thought might be in there? You know, a big question mark is the future of uh, armed unmanned aircraft, <clears throat> which are now, by the way, being called uncrewed, uh, and the F-35. If you read what the Commandant has said in the restructuring, particularly, it, it, he walks up to the line of saying, we're going to cut back on the F-35s, and instead we are going to employ armed UAVs. But he never says that. Uh, so, and the Marine Corps apparently is thinking about it. Of course, aviation is bitterly opposed. But that's the piece that needs to come out. The Marine Corps uh, is way, way behind the Air Force in terms of armed UAVs. You know, the Marine Corps was, of course, a, a leader on UAVs back in the 1980s with Pioneer, uh, but it fell behind. The Air Force um, um, deployed a very large fleet of Predators and now Reapers, uh, somewhat reluctantly in the beginning, but you know, they, they, they caught on. Uh, and you know now has a fleet of something like 300 uh, predators and reapers. Uh, last year, I when I I write a military forces uh, report every year, and I had a section on the Marine Corps, and I said, and the Marine Corps only has six compared to the Air Force's 300. And I got an email from a friend at Marine Corps headquarters, and he says, you're wrong on the Marine Corps number. Actually, the Marine Corps only has three. <laughs> not six. And it turns out they're down to two. <laughs> uh, so the Marine Corps now has two armed UAVs. I think they're both run by contractors and the Air Force has 300. Now the Marine Corps has a plan, you know, for a uh, armed UAV, uh, I think 2025, they want one that can operate off of a How long ship. do we accept that answer that we have a plan? Because that was, I, I mean, we destroyed, literally, we destroyed our fixed wing aviation assets for the lack of drones and the lack of, 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 of somehow or other obtaining drones that could loiter on station for hours, we destroyed fixed-wing aviation and created this non-functional gap where we had, what, Mark, 30% of Marine F-18s capable for a period of, what, 36 months before the F-35 began to come online? And, and that was for the lack of, I mean, what we had F-18s doing and then we created the Harvest Hawk, was loitering on station in a permissive environment, right, doing things yep. that ISR did better. They stayed yep. on station longer. Yep. You know, their, their dwell time was better. And, uh, and, and how long yep. will this go on? Well, and that's, that's what I would say. That's, this is the missing piece in the restructuring. You know, what is... General Berger going to do. And, and I would say, I think what he's doing is right. I mean, the, the direction he's heading is the right direction. The Marine Corps needs that um, UAV capability um, because of its long time on station. Uh, I think that there are two things. One is, you know, the, the best is the enemy of the good. That is, the Marine Corps wants a system that can fly off of a ship as well as off of land. Uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense, but, you know, that takes time to develop and then, you know, test and then field. So the Marine Corps you know, will literally be 20 years behind the Air Force. 
Uh, and the other thing is, I think that uh, marine aviation is resisting. You know, they believe in you know manned aircraft. You know, they are very focused on the F-35 and the capabilities it brings, and they are dragging their feet on UAVs. But the truth is, the Marine Corps is trading aviation assets to pay for this transition. Yes. Some of them, yes. Uh, they're cutting both the F-35 and the uh, uh, MV-22 uh, force structure, uh, along with a, a bunch of other pieces of force structure. Their argument is because the number of infantry battalions is going from 24 to 21, you know, they can therefore take a slice out of everything else. So uh, they're doing that. Uh, but I say with the aviation, so far they haven't uh, put out a plan about um, armed UAVs beyond, you know, the, the notion that they're going to develop this um, this new system that will be fielded in 2025 or something like that. I mean, if, if I was a member of Congress, I would be a little bit chapped over that. I mean, we've laid out a lot of money to, 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 to build up some of this capability, and now we're already off-ramping it. Is that me being, you know... Is that me being uh, uh, ridiculous, or what do you think? Well, you know, I think, that, you know, the Marine Corps is fortunate in that it is it often flies below the radar horizon of the Congress. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, you know, and that has many good aspects, but it also means that in a case like this, uh, the, the Congress, you know, is a inclined to go along with what the Marine Corps uh, recommends now. If the Marine Corps recommends truncating the F-35 by on its own, you know, they'll probably get some pushback there. Uh, there are some indications that the department as a whole may cut back the F-35 by, and then the Marine Corps can sort of come underneath, uh, you know, that effort. Um, plus, you know, to be fair, the Marine Corps, strategists all focus on China. The Marine Corps says it is focused on China. So this resonates with the um you know, the, the community of, of strategists. So, uh, uh, you know, I think the Congress is inclined to give them a, um, give them a pass. All right. All right. Now, if I was in Congress, I'd be a little, I would be a little irritated though, because I mean, you know, when you talk about aviation, uh, and what we buy, I mean, we're talking about, you know, sucking the oxygen out of, you know, out of budgets. I mean, they're not, they're not inexpensive things. I mean, look at the CH-53 Kilo. I mean, yep. good, good God. I mean, I mean, we're talking about a helicopter, for God's sakes. Um, let's talk about the Marine Littoral Regiments. Um, uh, they have begun to, uh, to, uh, to, to stand up. Uh, give, me your, give me your thoughts on, uh, on them. And then, I, yeah. and, then I, and then I, you know, I'd like to ask you, Mark, in terms of uh, the overfocus on the South China Sea, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure that we, we talk about your thoughts relative to uh, balancing uh, the force over the range of capabilities over the course of the range of military operations, which has been one of the major criticisms of General Berger's plan. So I want to get your thoughts on, on yeah. that. But let's talk about let's talk about the MLR as it's standing up. Yeah. Um, the uh, Commandant's memo to the Secretary does say that the Marine Corps is going to stand up three, uh, I think Okinawa, Guam, and Hawaii, and and that that is new. I mean, they, the uh, commandant previously had said that they were going to stand up one, see how it worked. 
this was the first time I had seen definitely three. And, you know, the notion of a littoral uh, regiment, combat regiment, uh, you know, makes some sense. You know, there's a history in the Marine Corps. You know, the Marine Corps had um, the uh, defense battalions back in World War II right. at the, you know, to defend forward naval bases. And yeah, you know, that, the idea that, that we're did that not again. turn. I'm not sure how steeped you are in military history, Mark, yeah. but in case you don't know, that did not go very well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would give it a mixed review, but uh, uh, whether the Marine Corps wanted to spend a lot of you know, force structure on it is, I think, is a fair question. Uh, but uh, my, my question about the littoral regiments has always been, you know, why isn't this a MAGTAF? Uh, you know, a MAGTAF is supposed to be flexible in organization. You could build a MAGTAF that around a, you know, artillery battalion, you know, with long range missiles and an infantry you know, detachment company, you know, to protect it uh, and logistics. And, you know, why, why do you need this new kind of organization, you know, when you have this, this MAGTAF, uh, because that's what the littoral regiment looks to be. And you, then you can form it when you want to form it and, you know, and then leave units where they are uh, when you don't need it. Uh, so I've never really had it. Could you explain to everybody who some people listening might not understand what a MAGTAF is? Yep, yep. The MAGTAF is a Marine Air Ground Task Force, and Marines build these, in theory, uh, uh, flexibly from you know, small sizes, which are called special purpose. A MAGTAF maybe you're built around a company, uh, infantry company, all the way up to uh, a MEF, Marine Expeditionary Force, which is built around a division and an air wing and a logistic, logistic troop. So they're of any size and, in theory, you know, of any composition, pulling together all these different pieces. And to be fair to the Marine Corps, it's a great strength that the Marine Corps is, you know, accustomed to doing this. And the Marines routinely are, you know, re, uh, you know reorganized, reassembled into these MAGTAFs in a way, for example, that the Army does not and has caused them a lot of problems back in Kosovo, for example. Um, so there's really no reason why you couldn't do a littoral a regiment as a as a MAGTAF. Uh, at least I I'm not oh, I haven't seen any argument about why that's the case. Except that you know I think that the Marines get into this mindset that you know MAGTAF is not flexible. That you know MAGTAFs must have an infantry component, an aviation component, and a logistics component, and that's you know, of different sizes, but that's the way they are. And the notion of building one around, uh, you know, a, an artillery battalion, for example, you know, reinforced maybe with some air defense is, you know, I, you know just too far out of the ordinary for, you know, I know mar Marines to uh, accept. I don't know. Have you, have you heard anything different? No, well, I mean, that's stunning to me to hear that because I um I mean, I thought that was the the beauty of the MAGTAF that we could we could source it and proportionize it. I think I just made up a word. Um, we could source it and proportionize it. But Marines are innovative, so I, I, I fall back on Marine Corps heritage doing that. Uh, we could proportionize it, 
um, and it was the pliable tool. But every place we go will have those elements, and it seems to always have been valid in in my experience. And so I'm 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 curious and head scratching as you seem to be, um, as we have seemingly. Um, I don't want to say turned our back on it, but de-emphasized it. Um, I'm, 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 I'm not understanding it. Am I being stupid? Yeah. Well, I, I have the same question. I'm, not, I'm not sure why the Marine Corps didn't use the MAGTAF construct instead of a, you know, a permanent, um, uh, littoral regiment construct. Because you, you build a littoral regiment, and that's all it does. And you know, in theory, you should stand down in a, you know, another regimental headquarters. You're adding you know, more headquarters, uh, and you lose flexibility in case you, you want to do something different with your forces. So I, 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 I don't have an answer there. Well, now let me ask you this. One, one of the things that you, in, in, um, in discussing this, <laughs> is that people that are proponents of it get very indignant a lot of times, they have with me, about you just don't understand. Your clearances aren't high enough. Mac, to understand a lot of the nuances that this 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 concept is pinned upon, um, and I say, okay, but I know a lot of people. I know I know a lot of smart people, and a bunch of the people I know are general officers. I've yet to see any retired Marine general officer speak out in favor of this. The silence has been stunning. I mean, you couldn't get yeah. that kind of unanimous <laughs> unanimous vote on anything. Yet that I don't, I don't. Mark, have have you seen a retired general officer speak out in favor of this? You know, that's a good point. I I have not. Not uh, one. Not one. Think about that. I just everybody listening. Not one. And, and and the ones I've spoken to, their criticism has been the Marine Corps. And Mark made the point a little bit ago has been steered historically by commandants to be able to respond as the 911 force where you get the most bang for the buck and um, and and be able to re- respond across the range of military operations and by and by s- tilting ourselves so far to the South China Sea we will become rear area security and at time uh, and in time, we will become irrelevant. Now, that is, and again, the response to that is, you guys don't get it because you don't have access to what you need to have access to that makes this all come together. Is that, I mean, have you had a similar experience or am I an anomaly? Uh, I, I I haven't had Marines make that point to me. And the, the point that they usually make is, well, we're doing lots of experiments and this is a uh, work in progress. Uh, <clears throat> although I have run into those kinds of arguments uh, elsewhere. I, I, and I have to say, I have very little patience for it because, you know, I, like you, I've been on the inside, you know, I've had the opportunity to compare, you know, what's known on the inside versus what's known publicly. And, you know, there are always some details that are uh, helpful at the classified levels in, in a very few, very specialized situations. Uh, uh, highly classified material is, is useful when you talk about strategic ASW, for example, or some capabilities right. in space. But for something like this, no, there's nothing that th- they could have at the classified level that would convince me that you know this concept is fundamentally uh, sound. Uh, because 
part of it is, a big part of it is, it's an argument about where do you think the next conflict is going to occur? And you know, there's, no, there's nothing in the classified literature that would make you more certain that it was China. Um, now, it could be China, and people point that out, and I, I don't deny that at all. I mean, very dangerous what China's been doing on the South China Sea and the saber-rattling with uh, Taiwan, but it could also be in a lot of other places, and I, in that, I have history on my side. All right. So let me ask you another question that, that I get asked a lot and that I haven't seen resolved, um, at least to my satisfaction. Um, ships are relatively easy to track. And you're going to you're going to build a, a United States Navy warship, and you're going to put it. Let's just say in the vicinity of the South China Sea, the uh, the Philippine Sea, wherever in the region that you're going to put it. And and if the Chinese, if I'm them, and we're doing action, reaction, counteraction, I'm going to build ten ships for every one of those that you build, and they will rotate, and we will constantly be tracking you, just like we're tracked. When we get near the, you know, the, the Russian, the Kamchatka Peninsula, go up there and see what happens. You will be tracked constantly by the Russians. How do we think that we are going to, to, to hide these things in the region, not be tracked by the quote-unquote Chinese, uh, you know, fishing fleet, which is their navy, uh, in, in wearing other clothes, uh, on, on a consistent basis? How do we make these things invisible? And I think the largest failing of the Trump administration uh, in terms of strategic failings is if they didn't believe in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that's fine. Then you need to execute bilateral agreements with the Philippines, with Vietnam, Malaysia, because they are, in, they are absolutely integral to this strategy because if we can be ashore either training or have you know bases or whatnot – then, then we can be there in in number, and we can move, and we can achieve greater impact if we can be ashore in conjunction with our boats. But I I I don't see how these things survive, Mark. And could you explain it to me? I don't mean to put you well, on the defensive and make you defend something that well, you don't believe in. But has somebody given you a way that these things survive? You know, the Marine Corps makes a couple of arguments, uh, but the, the, the bottom line is you can't really know. Uh, you know, the Marine Corps makes a couple of arguments. One is that they're going to be dispersed, so they will be harder to track. Many of the units will be small, and of course, some of the um, transportation uh, systems, like the, the new amphibious warship, will be uh, less expensive and expendable. Uh and, and you know they'll be Wait, trying to take out. Did you just say expendable? Who's expendable? The the ship and the sailors, and the Marines. Well, yeah. I mean, the bottom line is yes. Uh, but you know, I mean, you know, things happen in war. So, uh, uh, and you know, they'll they'll be trying to take down the Chinese uh, system also, just as they're taking trying to take ours down, and we maybe have some success at that. But you know, it's a very it's very uncertain, and to bet the structure of the Marine Corps on this concept, on this unproven concept, is uh, very risky. Uh, I, I gave, I was on a panel, and someone brought up Guadalcanal as you know, evidence that, you know, this concept could work. And I said, well, you know, that's, I think Guadalcanal is a very good uh, 
historical example. But keep in mind, Guadalcanal first was not deep inside the the Chinese, uh, right, the Japanese uh, perimeter. It was right on the outside, and it was a nine-month battle. And it wasn't a small group of Marines moving around so the Japanese couldn't find them. It was a Marine division that was dug in and desperately holding off uh, uh, Japanese counterattacks. And you know, that might be what this concept ends up uh, looking like, but you're talking about a division-sized force now, a very large-sized force, you know, not these company-sized forces you know, that move around every couple of days so the uh, Chinese can't uh, find them. So make it make sense for me then? <laughs> well, I say, you know, it's it's very risky. And, uh, uh, you know, Marine, this is the kind of thing that they're wargaming. And they say the war games show that this is uh, viable. Okay. Uh, of course, none of that has been, you know, revealed to the public. public and, right, right. and, and you know, and it's possible. I'm not saying it's impossible. I mean, that's why I keep saying hedge, you know, not, not eliminate all of this restructuring, but hedge. Uh, but I also point out to them, that the the French thoroughly wargamed the Maginot Line before the Second World War. Oh, uh, they had a whole series you, of exercises. Tell me you don't do that to them. I mean, and, how does how does that go over for you? <laughs> uh, well, you know, well, you know, we're 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 not, you know, we're not the French. Uh, but the point is not, you know, that we're smarter than the French. The point is that any community, when they conduct exercises and war games and analyses are all coming from the same perspective and therefore have this the same set of uh, assumptions and you know play these uh, uh, experiments out the same way so they come up with the same answer all the time and uh, sometimes you know that's the enemy doesn't uh, cooperate <laughs> there you go there you go so um as this thing has gone forward, uh, what do you find most interesting? Are there elements of it that you, that you find most interesting? Because again, I, I don't. Nobody doubts that the Marine Corps needs to, you know, continue to pivot to the Pacific and and needs to uh, look at its legacy systems and 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 need. Nobody doubts that. Yeah. Um, and I think the people that have 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 raised questions, they've done it from a perspective as Mark has done in terms of proportionality, and 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 being useful more useful across the range of military operations. So um, anything that, that as the last year's uh, transpired, Mark, that you would say, this has my attention more now? Um, well, there were a couple of things in the restructuring that I've always believed were very sound and worth doing regardless. And at the top of the list is uh, anti-ship long-range missiles because – this is the kind of campaign the United States could be involved in, and those kind of capabilities really would be helpful for the joint campaign and are very accessible. You know, we have those uh, systems that are, you know, uh, um, deployable now, and uh, so the fact the Marine Corps is moving into that space, I think, is a, a very uh, sound thing. Uh, the restructuring talks about increasing the number of armed UAVs. We had that discussion. I think that's very, very sound. They know they just have to do it uh, instead of continually um, uh, developing and planning on some uh, future capability. They talk about air and cruise missile defense, and I think some of that it would be would make a lot of sense for the Marine Corps. Probably the short-range uh, uh, defenses, you know, long-range would be a part of the Army with Patriot and whatnot. But that you know that's a part of uh, force structure that both the 
Marine Corps and the Army uh, had uh, decreased after the end of the Cold War. And that was the right thing to do at the end of the Cold War. But the threats are going to be different now, and it's probably worth building back up uh, some of that capability. And the last thing is on the small amphibious ship, and we touched on that a little earlier. And let me say a few things about the about that. The, um, the Navy and Marine Corps have talked about building a small amphibious ship. And in fact, it's, it's in the program and they've uh, put out some requests for information from uh, yeah. industry. Uh, and, and I think building a small amphibious ship makes a lot of sense. If you look at amphibious ships over time, you know, they've been getting larger and larger, you know, the, you know, um, LSDs and LPDs of today are, you know, twice the size that they were, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, this is, you know, part of that, you know, all, all the Navy sh ship classes have been getting larger, heavier, more expensive. Uh, we don't have the capability we used to have in the LSTs, you know, the county class LSTs that could do a lot of small things that uh, are helpful both in peacetime, you know, to engage with uh, partners and allies, and also in wartime in the sense that, you know, they are uh, more expendable than a, you know, $2 billion uh, LPD, or, and of course, a, whatever, $5 billion LHD. Uh, my concern on the on the light amphibious uh, warship is that it not get too small. You know, some of the concepts that the Marine Corps put out were for essentially a World War II LCI, landing craft infantry, you know, something that was barely ocean going and that, you know, could go from point A to point B, but was not able to do a six month deployment, for example. And, you know, that struck me as just too small uh, that the Marine Corps needed something that was bigger that you know, could do a six month uh, deployment and be useful in peacetime that way. Um, and then, you know, when they finally come out with a, a design, you know, they may go in that direction. But I say that I was a worry that they were going too small. So let me ask you, this this change will not be how do you see this change unfolding in the Marine Corps? If you look over the horizon, um, how do you see it's going to take multiple commandants uh, to get this done? Uh, they may or may not all see eye to eye on on these changes. How how do you how do you see this unfolding in the future? Yeah. Um, well, there are two big risks. You know, one is that it will take multiple commandants, as you point out. You know, the it's it's restructuring twenty thirty, so that's you know two commandants in the future, frankly, uh, and then would have to be sustained by. Other commandants, and we've seen in other services how, you know, uh, a, a chief of the service who puts out some radical uh, concept often is, you know, modified by the successor. You know, you think about Zumwalt, and I think Moore came in after him. Um, so, you know, the ability to sustain is a question. The other question is just money. You know, you have a new administration coming in. The Biden administration are almost certainly going to cut the DOD budget, probably not by a lot, but by some. And when I talk to the Marine Corps programmers, uh, they're scared to death that the um, the new administration is just going to take the savings and that the Marine Corps will have lost structure and won't have the money to put into the new capabilities. Now, that's so, been a criticism. That's, that's been something that's been pointed out throughout. That, if, and, and the other part of that is now... 
is if you trust the Navy that when push comes to shove, they're not going to take your money and give you nothing in return, <laughs> you haven't been paying attention for the last 240 whatever years that we've been around. And that's the other, that's, we don't say that really out loud, but we say that in, with great volume, right, in, very much in private. Uh, well, that's that's true. Uh, and, and and here, you know, the Marine Corps, you know, might get punished for doing the right thing, at least from a budgetary point of view, because right. to the Marine Corps credit and the commandant's credit, you know, he outlined this vision for new investments and identified the offsets. And he kept on saying, I, I'm not asking for any more money to do this. I've identified internal offsets. And he did. Right. Uh, unlike the the Navy and the Air Force, the Air Force said we want to grow by 25 percent. Yeah, give us the money, and the Navy did the same thing. You know, we want to grow to 355 ships. Give us the money. Uh, but uh, the Marine Corps identified the offset. So, it, you know, from a budgetary point of view, it did the right thing, and it just might get punished uh, for for doing that. And that punishment would be in the form of you you've given up structure, personnel, right, legacy systems. And the commandant, you know, has stated publicly, repeatedly, all we're asking is we be allowed to recoup that money, blah, blah, blah. And the, the great fear is when push ultimately comes to shove in a budget fight, you're going to get told, hey, thanks, but it's not going to be there. Exactly. Uh, and wow. that, you know, as the top line comes down, you know, the Marine Corps will be given a bill and that, you know, the. Uh, offsets that the Marine Corps has identified, you know, would be its share of that bill. But now there's no money to invest in the the new capabilities, uh, you know, the UAVs, in the you know long-range precision mis missiles, and some of the other capabilities that the Marine Corps wants to build. You're not. That's not a. Good, that's not a picture that anybody wants to look at. Uh, well, no. <laughs> uh, and it was in the commandant's you know memo to the secretary, uh, right. but. Uh, you know, it just may be unavoidable, you know, given the dynamics outside of the Marine Corps. Got it. Got the, it. The larger uh, uh, budget dynamics. Um, let me uh, let me ask you a few more questions, Mark. What sure. um, what is the greatest danger to the Marine Corps in all of this? Is it is it that which you just outlined that 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 it will be marginalized? Um, by virtue of the inertia of the budget and its own initial enthusiasm for change. That's certainly one big risk that the Marine Corps just gets smaller and not be able to do this transformation. Um, the other risk is that uh, it turns out to be irrelevant, uh, as we discussed earlier on, that there will be a crisis that comes up where the Marine Corps does not have the capabilities and the command authorities turn to the army and say, you know, you will be our you know, force and ready, our rapid response force, because the Marine Corps does not have the breadth of capabilities that we need for this particular um, crisis. And, you know, that that will come up very subtly and it will sting a lot. Oh, man, it's stinging right now. It's yeah. I don't even like the sound of it. <laughs> uh, well, I say that's <clears throat> and that's. You know, that's the risk that that the next major crisis will not be the one that the Marine Corps prepared for. Got it. And that's that's always out there. But but again, I think I think listening to this discussion, you can see the perils of, you know, some of this is budgetary. 
right? Some of this has rested on promises that other people haven't really expressed like, oh, yeah, yeah, we will make sure that that happens. We, you know, we believe the Marine Corps is doing the right thing and in this transformation. We wish all branches of the service would do it. And of course, we'll honor, um, of course, we will honor, uh, you know, our financial commitments to them as they divest. Yeah. You haven't heard that yet. Yeah. Well, no. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, the new administration is not making any of those kinds of promises. I mean, and to be fair to them, you know, they're, they're getting their feet on the ground, so they aren't prepared to do that. Right. Right. But in the meantime, uh, we wait with uh, with with bated breath. OK, so in this in this in the development of uh, Force Design 2030, what is the next thing that you are looking at? Uh, well, as I think I, I mentioned earlier, uh, some uh, some plan for aviation and the armed UAVs and the F-35s, since that was clearly implied in the original plan. Uh, there's likely to be some cutback on the CH-53K, you know, because there's they're so expensive. And, you know, if you are not if you the marine corps are not desi designing yourself for sustained uh, ground combat you know then your your need for very heavy uh, lift you know goes down it doesn't go away but it goes down and, and you're not going to do these large amphibious uh, landings you know we have to move a lot of equipment ashore from ships very quickly um uh, you know longer term there's a cultural issue here that came up again on a panel I did over at a Heritage. Uh, you know, if the, if the Marine Corps really does restructure itself this way, then the infantry will no longer be the focus of the Marine Corps because the infantry's role will be to protect the long-range shooters, the artillery and the aviation. That the Marine Corps, the infantry's role will be very static and that the primary um, uh, combat capability of the Marine Corps will be in the artillery and the aviation. So, you know, the, the notion you know, of a infantry to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy, well, that's not required in this concept because, you know, you're, you're setting up these defensive bubbles around the island chain that are then going to reach out with their fires to attack the enemy. Now, it's not like... Next year, you know, the infantry will be uh, in second or third place behind the artillery or um, aviation. But in a generation, if you really did this, then the infantry will be something of a backwater uh, as uh, compared to the long-range strike capabilities that will reside, in, particularly the artillery, uh, but elsewhere. I can't believe I just allowed that to be said on this program. This oh. is this is a, <laughs> this is. Uh... I, well, I I I, I raise this <laughs> partly to get that reaction, just to really annoy the Marines, but just to point out no. what the implication is right. of this restructuring. Right. And because they keep saying no, 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 the, our infantry is still going to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. And I said, that's not the concept. The concept isn't that you're landing infantry and they are assaulting. You know Chinese um, strong points. The, the concept is that you land in unopposed areas, 
and set up a long range strike capability. And their infantry is just to, you know, just to guard that. Uh, if you understand the, 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 the term area denial, right? Area access, yeah. area denial. If you understand that, those concepts, that's what, uh, that's what, <laughs> that's what we're talking about here. And so, uh, and so then the, the, the deniers among us, right? The deniers among us say, <laughs> say, well, yeah, I know one of our missions could be like rocket security forces and stuff, but we're still going to, and then somebody looks at him and says, no, we're out of that business. Yeah, that's right. We're out of that business. What, uh, what do we put on the plaque then? Like, do we, <laughs> do we have to change all of our sayings? Right. What, I mean, what the hell do we do? What's going on well, here? Just, just instead of like, you know, first battalion, you just call it the, you know, first infantry battalion, but you just call it first force protection battalion. Stop I mean. it. No, hey, stop, <laughs> stop it. Stop it. The, well, the walls exactly. of the, the walls of the museum are shaking right now. Now, Mark, do not go inside the tabernacle and do that. I, I know. I know. Uh, but I say the reason I keep, Raise, the reason I keep raising that is to point out the implications of this restructuring. Well, no, it is. It's the it's the denial piece where people yeah. are saying, "Well, yeah, we're still going to do that," and then people look at you and say, N "Like when, when you look at people and say, no, we're out of the sustained ground, uh, ground combat business.'" It's silence, a, a hush falls over the room. Like, well. If there's like a land war, then we're not going to participate. No, we're not. Right, right. Understand, Marine Littoral Regiment is a concept for the Marine Corps. So we're going to be hanging out with the Navy. Yes. Yeah. Right, and we're going to have all the relevance of the Navy uh, that it had in Iraq and Afghanistan. <laughs> so they were drafting surface line officers to be civil affairs because they wanted to. Uh, have some role. Uh, We'd be all over that, though. We would be. <laughs> we we would be very fired up. Civil affairs officers. Yeah. Um, the um, yeah. This is not. I, I know this is depressing for people, but it's the evolution of the Marine Corps. Now, again, I I keep getting told that Mac, you don't you don't have the clearances required to you know to have the access to the information that makes this all make sense, but it does. So anyway, do you have any of that access access to that classified information that you want to share with us, Mark? Um, well, you know, I still have a, a secret clearance. Uh, now, the Marine Corps has not brought me down to show me what they're doing. But I mean, I have <clears throat> access to what the rest of the department is doing. And, you know, I, I'm I'm confident that there's nothing at the classified level that would change any of my judgments here. All right. On that, we're turning the we're turning the page for God's sakes. Um, the um, you've written a couple things, and I want to ask you about them. Um, uh, in January, you wrote a piece called "Inflicting Surprise: Gaining Competitive Advantage in Great Power Conflicts." Uh, what's that about? Ah, well, thanks for noticing. Well, uh, and and there's a picture of uh, of the Doolittle. Uh, there right? is. Yeah. There is. Yeah. As they uh, take off. This was a separate uh, strand of research that I've done. A couple of years ago, I did a report, a project on coping with surprise, what happens when adversaries surprise us, and looked at surprise in a couple of dimensions. Of course, surprise attacks, which people think about, but also technological surprise, 
doctrinal surprise and diplomatic political surprise. And we had a bunch of vignettes that illustrated what ha what adversaries might do to us to surprise us. Uh, I can come back to that in a second. But this was a follow-on to that uh, because you know, a lot of people looked at it and said, you know, this is all very interesting, but it's very reactive. You know, what can we use surprise as a tool? Uh, and so this was the response to that thinking, okay, how do we use surprise? How can we surprise our adversaries? And so, and so this report uh, was the result. Got it. Got it. Um, what's what's the uh, what's give me uh, give me two salient points from it? What was the conclusion? How can we use surprise? Well, I mean, a couple of points came out. The first is that democracies have been able to use surprise very successfully uh, in all of the dimensions uh, in the past. Uh, you know, we we don't do you know an Operation Barbarossa. Uh, you know, but we were, we surprised the Iraqis. You know, we surprised the Panamanians. Uh, we we can use surprise attacks, and then of course when you look at technological surprise and, and uh, doctrinal surprise, political surprises. You know, we've there's a history of being able to do all of those. Um, the other thing, though, is that this is very hard to think about in peacetime because inflicting surprise requires you to do things that are different that are very often transgressive to normal peacetime behavior. And so you have to think about them, I say, differently. And it's hard to imagine what a great power conflict would look like where you might want to uh, take these kinds of actions. Uh, we have the Doolittle Raid uh, on the cover uh, to make that point, you know, that it was only, I think Doolittle was like March, April of 42. I mean, it was only after we got hammered at Pearl Harbor and then in the Philippines, you know, the people started to think about, you know, how, how can we strike back and doing things that they would never have thought about, you know, a year or two or three before. Uh, and it's hard to capture that ahead of time. And what, we're, what the report urges people to do is to, is to think about that now. And also to think about the boundaries, because there are boundaries. I mean, there are ethical boundaries, there are moral and legal boundaries, um, and you know where you want to, to draw the line. Um, so uh, let me let me come back to one vignette. We did a bunch of vignettes on the uh, inflicting surprise, but let me come back to one vignette on coping with surprise, which was sort of amusing. Uh, and the vignettes were like one or two page, you know, sort of small scenarios. Right. One of the vignettes looked at the possibility that the Chinese might try to assassinate our senior leadership at the beginning of a conflict. And we point out that you know, the Russians and the Iranians uh, had used assassination, so the North Koreans. And you know, it's not inconceivable that Chinese might do that also. And that, the, you know, it hypothesizes, you know, the, that the Chinese, you know, they're able to kill the president, but the vice president survives, you know, secretary of defense survives, but the chairman of the Joint Chiefs doesn't, you know, how right. um, And uh, uh, we put that out there. I get an email from the director of the Secret Service. Oh. Would, would you mind coming over to talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the joke was uh, uh, that maybe I should go over with my uh, lawyer. You um, think? Really, and I did go over and talk with the, the director, and we had a wonderful conversation. Uh, he he, uh, he said he was trying to think about non-traditional threats to the president, and this 
had popped up. And uh, so we talked about, you know, what non-traditional threats might look like and, you know, how the Secret Service might uh, deal with them. But it, it got a lot of attention. Oh, so you were so you're being an asset to them, not a uh, not a that, subject of something. That, that's right. Well, that's, that's good. Right. We're, we're all relieved. We're all, we're all relieved at that. What's uh, what are you writing next? Um, we have, well, we have sort of two projects going on. One is about uh, COVID and the military. And we've been doing that for about a year, tracking how the pandemic has been affecting the, uh, the military. And uh, a second one is actually about NATO expansion and looking looking at that and looking at expansion very skeptically uh, that you know, many of the new countries that have been brought into NATO have been very um, weak and unstable and you know, making the point that we, we really should stop expanding NATO. NATO is not the United Nations where you know, the more the merrier. Um, how about NATO's core problem of, of Germany and uh, Germany, France, and the United Kingdom um, dwindling as military powers? Uh, well, they are. Uh, but you know, bringing in uh, North Macedonia and Montenegro doesn't help you with that problem. Are you kidding it, me? It just makes it worse. <laughs> Since you have more weak, you have more weak sisters, if you will, in there. Um, let me ask you this. Do you see that turning around anytime soon in NATO? I mean, it doesn't seem to me, yeah. it doesn't look like people are very anxious to, I mean, they were, weren't anxious to meet, right, the 2% goal that they all signed up for. And uh, now that Donald Trump is gone, and, and uh, I'm not sure that Joe Biden will beat that drum with the same fervor, especially as the United States, uh, as especially as the United States uh, uh, looks at uh, limiting its investment in defense. Um, uh, what do you see in the future of that? And and with an emerging China, um, NATO is ultimately the military power of you know, rules-based order, and uh, and that is what China says it will uh, it will supplant. Yeah, you know, I, I I don't hold out a lot of hope for NATO becoming you know this, much this more is a very de- uh, very depressing interview. I'm ro- ro- robust. Uh, you know, the UK and France retain some global capabilities, although they, both of them have shrunk. The the UK particularly. Um, you know, would, you, would you say the UK's military capability has shrunk to a point where it is alarming? Uh, I mean, the, the shrinking, yeah, I mean, yes, you know, but I will say, you know, that they've managed to retain a pretty high quality military, even as it gets smaller. Um, but to put that in perspective, by the way, the, the British Army is just a little bit bigger than U.S. Special Forces. Good God, that's uh, it, it's really very small. Uh, that's the but, British, the British Army. Yeah, that's right. The whole army. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, off the top of my head, you know, the British Army is about eighty thousand, and Special Forces is about, I'm going to say, seventy-two thousand. Uh, uh, so, but you know, the, the the quality of the forces is good, and they're and they're deployable. Uh, I had. A meeting with a group from NATO, and they asked me, you know, what do you think about the NATO allies? And so I said, you know, the the British, you know, you have excellent 
armed forces. Uh, they're getting smaller, but you'll fight. Uh, the French, um, as an ally, you're a pain in the ass, but you've got strong forces and you'll fight. I looked at the Germans and I said, I'm not really sure about the Germans. Um, and so, so that's sort of where we are. You know, well, you could have been and, generous to the Germans. You have no forces and you'll fight, right? <laughs> uh, right. I mean, they are the chief, in my opinion, the chief enabler of Russia on the continent. Uh, uh, because if, if, if they would all have just, you know, a baseline force, there would be nothing Russia could do to when you plug all of that into American military power. There'd be Russia has no answer for that. And I, I, Germany, and then I, the irony of ironies, right? Germany telling the United States not to leave Afghanistan. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. What, what is she, why don't you send a few of your battalions to the, condes, to the contested parts of Afghanistan? What? Right, right. Uh, and, and the UK and French, they will do that. Uh, uh, so, uh, but the rest of NATO, you know, uh, not so much. And what you point out is absolutely true. You know, that, that if NATO really put its mind to it. There's no way that Russia could, uh, 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 you know, seriously threaten them. You know, the, their economies are far, far larger. Their military is larger. Uh, it's only that, you know, the Russians have, you know, built a much smaller, but now actually pretty high quality military. Um, and NATO has been just so uh, weak and degraded. And I don't see much change coming there you know the you, you talk to the europeans and they just don't have the sense of threat uh that we feel uh and certainly not with china you know they regard uh, you know china as sort of our problem you know they aren't in the pacific they just want you know good um, commercial relations with uh, the chinese so there we're really on our own got it all right let me ask you one final totally unrelated question and it just calls for an opinion response all right um, or maybe not. Um, what happens to Russia when Vladimir Putin moves on? Ooh. I don't know. <laughs> what? Um, uh, Come on, I, you're I, a think I, tank guy. You're supposed to think I, about I shit like I this know. and give you an answer. And uh, in the in the summer, I actually run a program on uh, the Russian military, which is not my area of expertise, but I've learned a lot about the Russian military. Uh, I mean, first, I don't see Putin leaving. You know, he, he's like riding a tiger. You know, this isn't something you can just climb off of. So, you know, and he's not an old man, you know. So you know, he, the idea that he could be around for, you know, a decade or two is not uh, inconceivable. But it's, and, at some point, we all succumb yeah. to, you know, to, to, to the realities yeah. of the world. And then yeah. at some point, they will transition. What happens to, uh, what happens to Russia when... Um, I, I think it'll be very interesting. Um, you know, they, I mean, he he turned back the hands of time, um, and uh, as you know, as as they as they had a terrible experience with uh, after the wall coming down, and with uh, I, I didn't realize Mr. Gorbachev was still alive. He is. I think he had a birthday the other day, and uh, you know, Boris Yeltsin and uh, and 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 Vladimir Putin pulled all that together. When you have that charismatic figure gone, um, does Russia stay Russia? Uh, if I had to bet, I would say yes. Uh, I mean, first, you know, if he were uh, 
to die, you know, there would be some sort of collective leadership, you know, replacing him until, you know, they sorted it out. Um, but, you know, he's very popular. Right. And the notes that he have, has has sounded uh, with the ro- Russian populace, you know, the, the nationalism, you know, the pride in their military uh, regeneration, the uh, traditional social values, um, and the stabilization of the economy, which isn't great, but it's a lot better than it was in the 90s. Right. Uh, you know, putting all that together, uh, it's been very popular, and I think a successor would continue that. Uh, and I, I I just don't believe that you would have a successor who would be, you know, out of the, you know, liberal Western mold, you know, moving Russia back into the whatever G20 or uh, whatever. Uh, now, I mean, there's always a chance that could happen, but you say the elements of his um, policies have been, have been individually popular with the, with the population. So I, I think Whoever came after him would pick up on those. Got it. Mark F. Kansian, Senior Advisor, International Security Program from CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, Mark, anything I haven't asked you that you want to make sure people know? Um, no. Uh, <clears throat> one thing to watch is the Biden administration. Yes. They have started publishing strategy documents they have not put out anything on the budget so we don't know you know the answer to some of these questions about you know what kind of systems will they buy you know how big will the military services be how big will the budget be but they're putting out strategy documents and there are you know there's good news and bad news you know the good news is you know the the strategy they talk about is sort of centrist left late obama you know not radically different um, uh, you know, from what we've done for, you know, the last, whatever, 25 years. Okay. Uh, the bad news is uh, you read the, nat- the their interim national security strategy and the word climate is probably in there 20 times. The word army or Navy or Air Force don't appear at all. So, so don't even bother looking for the word Marine Corps. Right. So, so uh, they have greatly expanded the notion of what constitutes national security, which Democrats typically do, you know, and, and their number one security challenge is uh, climate. And they also identify, you know, pandemics and global health and uh, employment and a, and a wide variety of things. And it's not that they don't say anything about you know, what we consider, you know, national security in terms of China, Russia. I mean, they do have, uh, uh, they do talk about that, but it is, you know, part of a, a much larger whole and, you know, how that will play out in terms of their attention and budgets remains to be seen. There you have it, Mark Kansian. Mark, first of all, uh, I apologize for not having you on in so long. I, I thoroughly enjoy the conversation as I do every time. And uh, wish all the best. I enjoy uh, I enjoy reading your work. It's always thought provoking. And thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, Mark Hansen. That'll do it on a Monday edition of All Marine Radio. My thanks to Mark Hansen for doing that. Always interesting.
pretty interesting stuff, though, coming out of uh, relative to DOD news. Uh, what's going to happen in Afghanistan? How does the Biden administration thread that needle? Chief, chief in those, right? I mean, that's that's not a small deal. And then um, I'm curious to see what people say about what Adam Smith has to say. That the F-35 is never going to be an effective weapons platform in the long term for the United States, and we need to find something else. I mean, that's that's stunning that he's that that guy is saying that in public. Yeah. So, anyway, have a great day. As always, don't be afraid to change somebody's life. Most importantly, and um, we'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow, Ken Rogers is going to join us. Uh, you know, Kenny's a Quezon veteran. He made it, He and his wife Betty made a documentary called Bravo: Common Man, Uncommon Valor, and um, that documentary begot a second documentary called I Married the War. And so we're going to get Ken on this week and Betty on probably next week or the week after talking about it. Um, how the two experiences are different, how they kind of led to each other or how the first one led to the second. And I think you'll, uh, I know you'll find the interview with Ken, you know, awesome. So um, that'll be on tomorrow. So there you go. It's called a teaser. That's right. Yeah, the people who trained me would be proud of me for doing that because I was never really good at it. Right? They would be stunned, in fact, if I did <laughs> if I did it. You didn't tease tomorrow's program. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Got too excited. Anyway, have a great day. On a Monday, I'm out.